0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Genealogy Adventures. I'm Brian Sheffy,
1: And I'm Donya Williams. How is everybody today? It's getting cold outside. I have tea just to let everybody know.
0: <laughs> it is so much for, you know, that nice autumnal summer thing that sometimes happens. Not Not this year. But welcome to the show. Thank you everyone for spending the next hour of your Sunday with us. And we are really, really looking forward to this one as well. We look forward to every show, but we're really looking forward to this one too. So I would like to welcome to the show, well both Donnie and I would like to welcome to the show, Rick Murphy, who's gonna talk about the new uh, African-American genealogical society called Society of the First African Families of English America. Welcome to the show, Rick.
2: Thank oh, I thought guys. I was introducing
0: him. Okay. Oh, yes, sorry you are. That's
2: okay. You've done <laughs> it now. It's oh, good. I'd rather have introduce me if that's what you want to do.
1: <laughs> I am so good. We are good.
2: <laughs> you know, guys, thank you so much for having me. This really is an honor. I was wondering when you guys are going to invite me. You know, I felt kind of slighted for a while. Um, nah, you. This is the second time you've been on the show, Rick. Oh, is it? Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was beginning to have my feelings hurt. No, no, never that. and And before you start asking me a whole lot of questions, I really want to congratulate you guys on the Ida B. Wells Award from the Sons and Daughters of the Middle Passage. You know, I don't know if you know, I'm one of the founding members and a chartered member and I'm on the board of directors. And it was such an honor for us to give you guys the award because you guys do such great work. And that's really why I was a little upset that I thought you guys weren't going to invite me. So, but anyways, <laughs> congratulations.
1: Now, well, you don't never have, you never have to worry about that. You are always welcome because Thank I you. hear you, you got a book that we probably are going to talk about one day. You probably going to come back again. Yeah. So, mm-hmm.
2: I got a whole <laughs> bunch of books and I got some more books getting ready to come out pretty soon. So,
0: yeah. yeah. Oh, great. Well, thank you for the um, congratulations. It was such an honor to receive that award. I thought you were going to make Dawn your cry there for a minute. I could have sworn yeah. I saw her <laughs> eyes kind of, her eyes kind of mist um, it it, up. But, but seriously, it, you know, to have your work recognized, especially by your body of peers, was um, it, it really blew us away. It did. It, mm-hmm.
1: And I think it did so because we weren't expecting it.
2: No. That was the whole idea.
1: Yeah, it was totally left field. We we had no clue. So thank you for that.
0: Mm-hmm. So, Mr. Murphy, with your books about the 1619 Africans of Virginia, your, your deep, deep knowledge and scholarship, because you have spent a goodly part of your adult life, you know, researching, you know, your different parts of your ancestry, that that's just one. Can you tell us where the, the passion comes from and really you and the body of people that you work with documenting early African Americans in British held America?
2: Well, you know, Brian, uh, I probably can come up with a long list of stuff that really has inspired me, but I really think my ancestors speak to me. And, and I'm oftentimes surprised when I do uh, either genealogical or historical research that all of a sudden I find something that I'm connected to. And I think one of the reasons that made it easy or makes it easy for my ancestors to speak to me is all four of my grandparents, maternal and paternal, always talked about who they were related to, um, the historical events around their lives. And growing up in Massachusetts, which is a very historical place anyways, which was the founding of democracy, um, it was the place That really was the epic center for the Revolutionary War, the epic center with abolitionists during the Civil War. My family was involved in that. So that's all I heard my entire life. So I think I became an easy host to do this research because I had heard so many things about their accomplishments and the places where my family lived that it made it easy for me. Uh
0: And I'm gonna open up the question about the actual society itself by, because you have the term English America. So am I right in thinking that this would apply to, if you can document your ancestry before 1770 in New England, the the New England colonies, the mid-Atlantic colonies, back to New Sweden, New Amsterdam even, Am I right in thinking that so long as your ancestor was here before 1770, you would qualify?
2: Well, uh, the answer is yes, but let me have a longer response to that. I've heard so much about how we need to go back to where we came from. Hmm. A man who has done the type of genealogical and historical research that I have, I know that of the 44 million Americans of African descent and the 20 to 40 million European Americans who have African DNA, and knowing that only 350,000 Africans came here, that we were here long before the founding of this nation. So to me, it's very important that we as Americans of African descent understand where our people came from. Now, clearly in America, the indigenous people came before anyone, but we are the second indigenous people who were here before the founding of the country. So to, to answer your question more specifically, we were here when this was just English America. So whether your ancestors were in Canada or what we call present day United States of America, or even parts of of, of Florida, which was Spanish America, even some of the colonies, it was English America. So anyone who can document their ancestry to English America prior to March 5th, 1770, and that in itself is a very important date for us, is eligible to join the society. So if you have documentation that your ancestor was of African descent prior to March 5th, 1770, whether your skin is white, light, bright, brown, or dark, you are eligible and able to join the society so long as you can provide the documentation. Okay.
0: And because we live in a time mm-hmm. where everyone has to be specific, does that also include people from the, um, from the Caribbean? If so Bermuda? English, Bar- if,
2: they're, if they're English colonies, Mm-hmm. prior to 1770 they have to be able to document it from from 1770 to present day
0: oh you have just generated some excitement
2: <laughs> oh the, it's, the... <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's a
2: whole bunch of hearts
0: just <laughs>
1: <laughs> 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 <It's laughs> right a whole bunch of hearts just flying through the air <laughs>
0: So can you talk, uh, kind of walk us through what the documentation process for for your organization, what what does that look like?
2: Well, I'd like to make an analogy and I think this is the easiest way to do it because if I just say, you're gonna provide legal documentation, all of a sudden everybody says, what kind of legal documentation? If you or I were to buy a house and someone said, we don't have a clear title on that house, We intuitively know the kind of documentation that we would be looking for to have a clear title on our house. We want paperwork, and paperwork that's defined legally in court. So any hereditary society is looking for legal documentation, which include a birth certificate, a marriage certificate, a death certificate, a will that has the names of the family. It might be a land patent. It might be anything that you can prove that you are the legal son or daughter of the previous generation. We also include DNA, because sometimes DNA provides information about one's ancestry that the legal documents do not. But we have to have something that's legal in nature that takes one generation to the previous generation Back to 1770. And I can tell you, we are swamped with good, solid documentation coming in. I don't think anyone ever realized that a lineage society like ours would be able to do what our folks and members are able to do.
0: Oh, I'm sure that's probably some people's worst nightmares but keeping on the topic of legal documents you know and again we're living in an age where systems can get hacked and fraud and all the rest of it so what kind of uh, safeguards do you have to, for keeping people's private information safe and secure
2: well the the first thing i have to say is i can't disclose publicly what our safeguards are because the moment i do that someone's going to try to attack those safeguards But what we do is is we, we collect the documentation. We will not receive any application that was sent over the Internet. So if somebody sends their information over the Internet, they've exposed themselves to the possibility of being hacked. We only receive the documentation by U.S. Postal Mail in hand. Then once we have the documentation, there are certain procedures that we take to protect the security of those individuals. And we only keep stuff up to a certain period of time. So that way it can't, uh, uh, we can't disclose anyone's confidential, personal, or proprietary proprietary information.
1: Well, that opens the question for me, because one of the problems that I actually have, for whatever reason, especially with the mail being the way that it is, is receiving mail i had issues receiving different things from different places even from augs at one point i had a problem um just different stuff and now with the mail being the way that it is what if someone sends something to you and you never get it
2: well the likelihood of someone sending something to us and we never getting getting it there's a possibility like with anything in the u.s post the mail. But if someone sends us something, the first thing they have to do is they have to register online in a secured site and pay their registration fee. Once we get that registration fee, our folks begin to look for the physical application. There's a phone number attached with that registration fee. And after so many weeks, we go out and call because some folks will register and say, oh, I'm not planning on submitting my paperwork for another eight weeks that lets us know that we need to be on the lookout, which we always are once we receive that, pa- that, that payment. Um, so again, that's part of our, our quality control, our checks and balances. So that way we know in advance to be expecting something. Okay.
0: And Loretta Bellamy made a very good point. She, her comment was always send, re- always send things like that via registered mail with a signature required. That's that the registered way
2: you, mail, FedEx, anything where where you're minimizing the likelihood of, the, of, of your documentation getting in the wrong hands.
0: So we know that the different states had different dates for vital records, births, marriages, and deaths. What advice would you give to someone or what documentation is acceptable when people start hitting Going be- before those dates, you know, like for instance, I think Georgia didn't mandate death certificates until 1919. South Carolina was around that time, but compliance 1915, 1915 but not everyone complied. <laughs> so course. you have you have that that wonderful dynamic. So when things like those vital records start getting difficult to get, um, what would what would be your advice?
2: My first and only advice is the understanding that our ancestors are tied to the land. Whether they were free, freed, or enslaved, they were tied to the land. So if you're looking for birth, death, or marriage certificates prior to the 1900s, for many of us, they just don't exist. But they do exist, documentation on our ancestors in the land records whether they were land patents, homestead uh, documentation, wills, deeds, even bank records. Many of our enslaved ancestors are located in the bank records because our ancestors were used as assets and they were worth more than the land that they lived on. So there are many ways that folks are now finding their ancestors. And again, they're not just in the birth, death, and marriage certificates. And you're absolutely correct. The federal government required that in 1905, but not every not every state adhered to it. A lot of the jurisdictions didn't hear, adhere to it, and even those that did during the Revolutionary War period and the Civil War period, many times those records were burned, but the land records were always reconstructed. Mm-hmm.
0: Plus, again, I mean, I I appreciate not every. Formerly, enslaving state had them, but cohabitation registers, again, Virginia. I mean, again, I think not all of them have been found in Virginia. There are some counties that, that they either didn't do it or those records haven't been found. But those 1867, 68, 69 cohabitation registers in Virginia, brilliant. North Carolina did it a different way. They didn't really have cohabitation registers, but they had what they would call colored marriages. So newly, you know, newly emancipated people wanting to get their slave marriage solemnized, you know, would get married and you would actually see those entries in there. And again, if you're living in North Carolina, you may even get lucky that it will say formerly enslaved people if they were enslaved. Sometimes it will even tell you who their enslavers were. So, so again,
2: things, I mean, the 1865 records that are just really beginning to, I mean, everyone thinks of the 1860 census and the 1870 census without realizing that there are now those 1865 documents where they say where the person, where our enslaved ancestors lived, the plantations they lived on, who the plantation owner was, about the many instances about their parents, their grandparents, their siblings, their children, their grandchildren. So again, there's a lot of stuff that's now beginning to open up that we mm-hmm. never knew existed. So yeah. we have we inherently have the mindset that there's no documentation on our ancestors. But believe you me, that slaveholder has doc, had documentation out there because he used we were more valuable enslaved where we were overvalued prior to the Civil War. And after Civil War, we were devalued. For who we were. So those documentation that documentation's out there. Mm-hmm.
0: Well again, slavery was a business. You know, and Absolutely. we have to think and we have to think about slavery as a business. It was the big it was probably the biggest business in this country for the longest period of time. And whenever you have a business, you will have business records. Now whether they survive, that's a different matter. If they're in a repository, that's a different matter. But as Rick was saying, our enslaved ancestors' lives were documented, not by themselves.
2: Let me me put on my historian hat. In 1790, the value of the enslaved was $5.5 billion. Even back then? In 1790. Wow. We were the foundation of the monetary system in this country. So the documentation is out there. They were, uh, they were used as mortgages. They were insured, a lot of insurance industries. And that's why a lot of them are getting into trouble right now. For, and that's why they have to do uh, reparations. So, you know, um, you now do you have to do some hard digging? And, you know, I'm not going to say that you don't have to, but the doc, you know, the documentation is out there. And someone's going to say, where did Rick get that $5.5 billion. If you go to the United States African American Museum, the Smithsonian Museum in Washington, DC, they have it on the wall, 5.5 they sure do. 1790
1: census. Yes, they do. They and sure I knew exactly right? where you got it from because I've been there like seven <laughs> times. So when you said that number, I was like, I know where he got that from. <laughs> and it's like downstairs in the in the back, in the bottom. That's that's probably correct. in the uh, the second section of it where you start yeah, getting to thomas jefferson that's that's right correct. yeah right on that wall
0: oh, yeah 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 i remember right I remember on that it. wall
1: as as because started, they had it was, oh yeah i remember seeing that now yeah, because it was <laughs> right there on. Okay, so Kelly Lewis asked, "What floor?" A lot of people don't understand when you go the to the Smithsonian, there. you have to go to the bottom. It looks like it's only floor four, four floors from outside, when in actuality it's about seven because it's three floors underneath. So when you go in, you have to go all the way to the bottom. So we're gonna. I'm gonna say it's probably at like the second level of the three floors at the bottom. And it's a wall and that wall has all of the enslaved people on it. And it's just it's one of the most amazing walls I've ever seen in my life. It has families, it has all of that, you know, information up there. And when you um as you're looking at that wall, it's it's up there.
2: It's right on that wall. Mm -hmm. Well to be a little more specific, if you've never been to the African American Museum you want to take the elevator downstairs mm. because it takes you. It, it, it's supposed to symbolize being in the in the body of the slave ship. Yep. And each floor you're coming up, so when you look at coming off the elevator, you you're supposed to have the the feeling of being in the in the cargo hold of a slave ship. And each time period you go up a floor, you're going up another level. Yep. It,
1: it it is a it is a fantastic museum um and i think they have finally stopped taking doing it for tickets and you can finally just kind of go in but it is it is it is a fantastic museum you cannot see everything in one day you probably can't see everything in two days that's why i've been there seven times so yeah, <laughs> and this then is it's, the,
0: um... This is the Smithsonian's African-American History Museum in, in Washington, DC. So yeah, I'm of people typing it asking... in
1: right now. Yeah, I'm yeah. typing it in right now. but <laughs> it, it, is, it is one of the most fascinating museums I've ever been in. It's, it's awesome.
2: And that's why and... the Society of the First African Families is so important because so many of us are now beginning to, to understand our family's history, the contributions and perseverance of our ancestors. And we're now beginning it to document for generations to come.
0: And I'm just going to jump in and say there's one more record set that I don't think a lot of people are particularly aware of that documented our, our newly freed ancestors before the 1870 census. A lot of the former slave-holding states actually had a special census, yeah. not just for Black people, for the whole state. South Carolina, was that 1866 or 67? it was
1: 67 it was 67 the role was 67 and then it it kind of meshed with the um the labor contracts Mm
0: -hmm. yes Yes, yeah, it did.
1: it went along with the labor contracts but it was 1867. Not all and, of them had it and then they had one I think for 69 too. I think they had two.
0: Mm-hmm. They had because two. Because
1: Jefferson and Martha was on the 69 one.
0: Mm-hmm. So, Ancestry has some of them, but I found most of those early those right after the end of the Civil War censuses on family Search. That's right. that's where I tend that's to That's where them they from. are.
1: Mm-hmm. And yes, Kia. Yeah, we're talking about when you're researching your family. These these are to persons. <clears throat> yes, individuals.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, because you know, getting to getting just to try to get to 1770 is quite the endeavor. Not gonna lie, I'm not gonna say it's impossible, but it's quite the endeavor. I'm gonna say perhaps for most of my enslaved lines slightly different because they appear to have been held within the same enslaving family for multiple generations. Like my Edgefield Matthews family go all the way back to their enslaver and their ancestor, Captain Samuel Matthews of Virginia, who was in the 1600s. So that's one family line enslaved by another family who were their kin from about 1660 all the way down to the day of 1865 the the emancipation proclamation and and all of that so it's been probably so those lines have been easier for me to to be able to research but I'm thinking of people who you know had their ancestors sold or shipped or sent downriver from the upper south to the lower south and I can appreciate that's that's some rough genealogy is there kind of help and assistance that the, that the organization can, can give people to, to research you know, really difficult ancestry?
2: Well, let me say first, like most hereditary societies, we do not do genealogical research for prospective applicants. It's almost like a conflict of interest. Um, we have peer reviewers who review the applications. However, one of the things that we're going to be doing is developing a database with family names in the supporting documentation. So if you know of a family name or someone with whom you may be related to or a geographic area which they may come from, then once our database is, is populated with enough information, then hopefully that will make it very easy for people to do the genealogical research. And we probably will provide documentation up to um, the early to the mid 1800s. So, for example, if someone in the middle of the country who who did the research on your Matthews family, you'd have no way of knowing that, and you would struggle to do that same research. But if you came to our database and you said, okay, I know my family was Matthews and so forth and so on, then you'd be able to connect to that family line easily. So many of our struggles is everybody struggling to do the same thing, and someone out there may have already broke that glass ceiling. Um, And you wouldn't know it. So that's what we will begin to provide as time goes on. Um, We're not at that point yet. We're populating the database. So that's why the names that you see on our website, when I say that's going to implode, we're coming in right now with families with whom we never knew were enslaved families or families that had African ancestry. So, So just give us some time. It might take us a year a year or two to really provide some good solid documentation but that will be provided uh w- within due time. So
1: it sounds like you are I guess be it's it's so funny because we had um US middle passage on 2 weeks ago and it it sounds they were very much um structured from the DAR, it sounds like you have a DAR-like structure as well because they have a GRS system that has all of these people in there. And if you need to use them to help you do your research, like that system that you're talking about, that structure is already there. So is that that the way you're talking about?
2: Well, the the and again, being on Sons and Daughters Middle Passages board, I'm very familiar with their structure. And you, you use analogy much like DAR, the reality is all of the historical societies mm-hmm. are structured that way. Okay. We just didn't know about it because we aren't in, in any of those historical societies. Uh. So now that we are beginning to get into these historical societies, we're beginning to realize that those databases exist. So while we're out there struggling to find family names and find our ancestors and our lineages, many of these organizations have those structures in place. And um, our sister organization, the Sons and Daughters of the Middle Passage, we're so fortunate to have them because between the two organizations, we hope to be able to help folks in five, 10 years, be able to document back to the very beginning of the founding of this nation.
0: Uh Now, Ayawa Evans, and I, I apologize profoundly if I mispronounced her first name, um, she made the comment that records of enslaved in the Deep South is frustrating and scant. And she's been researching four of her enslaved lines for about the last 20 years. And I, and I want to get your feedback on, on this, particularly, Rick, and also you, Donia. One thing that I would suggest, especially for people who are descendants of enslaved people who were taken into the Deep South, if you haven't done a DNA test, do a DNA test, because if you are predominantly of African descent, which most people will be, um, if you are matching a number of white people, that's a clue. You will want to research them and their families, take a look at where their families were living and start trying to map things out. Because again, depending on when people were taking into the deep South and appearing on the 1870 census, the research that I've been doing, for for paid clients has revealed they knew where their parents were born. So you would get someone who was born in Alabama, but say, well, my mom was born in Tennessee and my dad was born in North Carolina. So you, so what I did is I went into that person's DNA results and looked at all the the white descendants of people who had places like North Carolina and Kentucky specifically where, and um, started working those out for clues and, and, was actually able to figure out the who. You know, who his mother was, who his father was, who enslaved them and take their ancestry back even further. So even though that wouldn't probably probably be submittable in terms of your organization, that's all about breaking down those brick walls to get to a place where you will have documents that you can provide. I mean, what do you think about that in terms of, of using DNA to crack through those those brick walls?
2: Well, let me, let me um, talk about DNA um, on the same path as you, Brian, but a little bit differently. Um, I think I, like everybody else, when I first got my DNA results, I saw, you know, thousands and thousands of, of you know, fourth cousins. Um, and quite frankly, they had little meaning to me initially, particularly my European cousins. Now, fortunately... Um, I did all my genealogical research in the early 80s. So that was before the internet, that was before DNA, that was before all this high-tech technology. And I followed the legal documents. Um, And when I did my first book, uh, the publishers didn't believe me and they said, go get a DNA test. And the DNA test aligned exactly place by place, person by person. Not everyone is that fortunate. But I think there are some inherent clues that I learned that I try to tell people about. And I like to lay those out a little bit. First, don't run away from your white cousins. What we're beginning to find out, and I think at the beginning of the the show I mentioned that between 20 20 to 40 million European Americans have African DNA. So if you see someone who's a European, who appears to be a European American, and they have African DNA, all of a sudden it tells you that there's a connection there and you wanna find out where that African ancestor lived. The second thing is many people who, who believe that their ancestors originated in the deep South. And the reason they can't find the records is because they're only looking in the deep South. Look at the migratory patterns of your DNA And you may find out that your ancestors were kidnapped from New England, from New York, from from Pennsylvania, from New Jersey, from Maryland, from Virginia, or from North Carolina, and they were taken or sold south. And you gotta remember, and I think I mentioned earlier, between 1619 and the end of the Civil War, only 340,000 Africans came to English America, the United States, over a 200-year period. But from 1805 to 1860, 1.5 million African Americans were sold south. So those clues are hidden within your DNA. So it's frustrating, it's hard, but as you indicated, Brian, if you look at where your, your, your African and your European ancestors, the migratory pattern, you may find out that you're looking at the wrong place and that's why you can't find them. And up, my revel I have 13 Revolutionary War African American ancestors. And with the exception of three, when they became free as a result of the Revolutionary War, they all changed their surname. And had I not known that, I would not have been able to find them. So many of our ancestors, once they became free, they shed their enslaved name. So DNA will help you understand that the name or names that you're looking for may have changed once the Civil War took place and they became emancipated and free.
1: Well, the DNA helped me do the opposite. I mean... It, it actually helped me do the opposite. It, it took me... It let me know that when Martha changed her children's names but didn't change her name and then we did the DNA, she, she, she didn't change her name because she was a Brooks. Correct. But she changed her children's name
2: mm-hmm.
1: into another family Correct. who is also... possibly... <laughs> you know, who's also related. But... Yeah, I mean, it actually did just the opposite for me,
2: so. And, Donnie, and and, and you got to also remember, um, and I don't know if you're familiar with Elizabeth Keys, the 1666-1667 case. Well, the outgrowth of the Elizabeth Keys case is we became a matriarchal society. And once we became a matriarchal society where the child takes the status of the mother, Mm -hmm. many enslaved women... If the father was free, or they had free uh relatives, they changed the, they, they put those kids in those free and vital environments so they would they would not be um, enslaved. So a lot of times you're not going to know that by the names. So in present day, we're so caught up with our surnames that we don't understand the circumstances in uh. which our ancestors, particularly the women within our families, had to live. So if they had a child, they may not want their child to grow up in an enslaved environment, or if the father, in fact, was was free, then they wanted to switch that over any way that they could. And you got to remember, there were a lot of women who were white who had um, um, African-American children, and they too kept that name so the child would take the status of the white mother. So there's a lot of stuff that went on. And sometimes, and that DNA helps you understand that a little better.
0: It certainly does. I'm going to come back to DNA for just a minute because I'm going to ask you how someone can structure their DNA argument or proof, kind of not argument, really, their DNA proof theorem. I just want to give a quick shout out to Rich, Rich, Ross Shady. He's saying that he's stuck in the 1790s in Northampton County, North Carolina. Um, Ross, I can feel your pain. I've got deep, deep, deep ancestry in North, Northampton County, North Carolina. Go to family search. And don't do the kind of general family search database search. On the main page, click search. On the drop-down menu, search catalog. When that catalog prompt comes up, type in Northampton, comma North Carolina. You will get records. You will be blown away. I'm just going to say you're going to be blown away by what's there. Go immediately to probate records and and inventories, and I hope that that helped you out. So sorry, that was a really quick kind of thing that I that I could answer on that one.
2: So can I jump, if can I, I jump in? Can I jump in for a second, Brian? Oh,
0: by all means, by all means.
2: In in understanding your genealogical roots, you have to somewhat understand African American history. Northampton County, North Carolina, and I have people. From there as well, you need to understand the founding of that county. And in 1705, when the Virginia passed the law that anybody who was free had to leave the state of Virginia, they all went to North Carolina. And Northampton was one of those counties that they left. So what you want to do is, is, is get a map, um, look at Northampton County. And when you look at Northampton County, Southampton County, a lot of those North Carolina counties directly over the Virginia and you want to take a map, you want to start drawing circles and say, gee, where might they have come from? And that's where you, cause if you're at 1790, you're just one generation away. And chances are you've that person is hiding in plain sight. So if you're in Northampton, North then look over the line and see where they came from. A lot of those people came from that Tidewater area, those counties right over the Virginia border, because um, they didn't move too far from home, so look in those areas and chances are you'll find your ancestors
0: yep mecklenburg, Southampton county
2: from there, yep,
0: yep, all of theirs, and literally the line between Virginia and North Carolina they went from one side of it to the other side. they did not go far Correct. they really really didn't
2: they didn't walk too far, so they didn't take planes and trains they literally <laughs> walked and it wasn't too far
0: mm so again, Ross, I hope that helps you out. So if I'm going to structure kind of a DNA proof theorem to connect one ancestor to his or her parents or a parent, kind of what is the acceptable, what would that look like?
2: First of all, um, if you go to my YouTube page, Rick Murphy uh, at YouTube, and I'm not sure what the YouTube page is. Um I did a presentation on how to submit a successful application to the sons and daughters of the United States Middle Passage, but also how to submit a successful application to the Sons and, to the Society of the First African Families. And in that, um, your first five, four or five generations, you need legal paperwork or an explanation as to why you don't have the paperwork. When you start to get into the 1800s, the 1700s, or even the 1600s, there might be a generation where you don't have the actual paperwork, but you know it's the right family. Your gut tells you the right family. They lived in the right county, they lived in the right township. You can write what is called a preponderance of evidence, where you provide a clear, documented story explaining why you think that this particular family who has the only name of, of Evans within the next 200 miles around them, it's got to be the same family. So what you want to do is write a preponderance of evidence and you've got to write it in such a fashion that whoever the random two peer reviewers are would say, yes, this is the right family. And you provide documentation around your argument. So if you say within 150 miles that you, you looked at every document out there, and you don't find this family. And the family that you find, you see where there's a person who's 80 years old and 60 years old, and this has to be the parent because the 80-year-old person's not gonna be the parent of this child that was born when the parent was only you know 82 years old. So there's a way that you can write a preponderance of evidence. Again, go to my YouTube page. There's a lot of documentation up on the internet on how to write good, strong, sound preponderance of evidence where you want that the average person would say 51% or more that this is the family and this is the particular mother or the particular father of this particular child. And your DNA can be included in that because you're going to provide how you're connected to somebody through through DNA. So if you've got someone who has the documentation on DNA and and they have provided the lineage, and you can document through your DNA that that's the person. The natural preponderance of evidence. So you got to write that out um, and mm-hmm. explain it.
0: Yep, I'm gonna even I'm gonna have to do that with one of the people I'm thinking of applying under, who is a descendant of John Goan. So that's, well, that's I have going... to
1: talk to you about the Goings anyway because I'm having a hard time with them. I know that my mom is is connected to them but she's constantly getting goings on her DNA. She just got two new ones. But we have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'm no one like I just no idea as to why or how. And thank you to um who was it that said that uh, very nice comment. Delma delma burns she likes my new look i personally am not a fan but <laughs> thank we you so very much
2: so, so you got three people now that they like that look but let's go back <laughs> to the goins and i think the goins everybody is linking up with the goins family because it was such a large uh, family but if you're related to the goins let me tell you this go to paul heinett's work free african americans um uh, dot com, North Carolina, Virginia, South Carolina, Maryland, and you'll see 900 different free African-American family lines. Now, this is not just a conversation about those folks who were free African-Americans, because we're talking about free, freed, and enslaved. But when you go to that website, you see all these family lines. And what you'll begin to notice is that they all intermarried. So if you've got a Goins, type in another family name and you'll find out you've got those people as well. So Goins tends to be a big family name. And because there are so many people today who still have the Goins family surname, it's one that we all think of. But if the Tannies, the Tannies were Goins. The Cornishers were Goins. The Sweats were Goings. A lot of those family lines were Goings lines because they intermarried. And a lot of folks who were sold south, they were kidnapping people. They went south. And lo and behold, someone says, well, I got a Goins in my family, but I don't know why. It's because they kidnapped them. And you'll see those Going family names in the colonial records where their children were kidnapped and taken south. So when you go to the free americanscom look at those family names. And many of us, please don't forget that it was a matriarchal society. So if I were to look for Murphy, 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 I would never have been able to find my ancestors. So look for those family names that, that you tend not to think about. And all of a sudden you say, oh, my word, I was able to break that glass ceiling. I was able to break the code that I didn't know that was there in plain sight. Okay, I will do that. Thank <laughs> you.
0: So part and parcel of this is to actually lift up, remember, memorialize and celebrate the lives of these, these first families, these first African families that were here. Why is that such an important thing for people to do?
2: Well, first of all, um, I think all of us um, was that little, kid in the 4th or 5th or 6th grade when they talked about slavery and everybody would turn around in the room, look at one another. Because it was something that we were taught to be ashamed of. It's important that we today understand the, the importance, the relevance, the contributions, the perseverance of our ancestors, whether they were free, freed, or enslaved, because they were the true founders of America. And it's important that we do our genealogical research so we can find out where our people came from and the circumstances in which they lived. America would not be America today if it were not for our ancestors. We were the ones who fought for the Revolutionary War. We fought for the Civil War. We defended this country every time our service was asked. And the reason why we use the date, March 5th, 1770, is that was the date of the Boston Massacre and the date of the assassination of Crispus Attucks, the first man to die for American democracy. So when we look Mm -hmm. at the principles of democracy, you can't do it without looking at Crispus Attucks and you can't do it without looking at the blood, sweat, and tears of our African ancestors. So when we think of all these people who talk about how proud they are of their ancestors, many of them didn't come here until Ellis Island And our ancestors had been here for generations. So when I say we're the second indigenous people of this land, we are. So we now need to begin to stand tall, straight, and embrace our ancestors because they were the ones that built this nation. And they were the backs and the blood and the sweat and tears that our nation was founded upon.
0: Uh
2: So if I Um, knew that in the third or fourth grade and read that in the history book, I probably would have set up a little straighter. I probably would have paid a little more attention to American history because the reality is it was the history of my family.
0: Absolutely, and I always bring it back to when when I was learning about Jamestown, not one of those textbooks ever said that those first Africans that were in Jamestown in 1619 literally saved
2: that colony. Brian, they barely
1: mentioned them. They didn't even mention them when I was at school.
2: And, Brian, I know you know that because you read my book, The Arrival of the First Africans in Virginia. You can buy it on, a, on Amazon.com, where I did extensive research on those first Africans. And the colony was a failed, bankrupt colony until those first Africans, and we, we should not, in respect, call them Africans, we should call them Angolans because that's the country that they came from. When those 32 Angolans stepped foot at, Fort, at Point Comfort, Virginia, from that point forward, the colony began to make a profit because of their knowledge and their understanding of farming, agriculture, and animal husbandry. So if you don't know about your ancestors, You want to buy the book, The Arrival of the First Africans in in English America, uh, Amazon.com. And when you read it, you get a better understanding of who our ancestors were. And those of you who say they weren't my ancestors, 70% of us descend from those Africans who were in the English colonies prior to 1770. They Ah. are all of our ancestors. Slated, and here's the thing that. Freed and enslaved. And here's the, th- the
0: other thing that amazes me about that group of people in Virginia, the, thir- the 32, 33 people. So they'd been there for, you know, they'd been there. We, okay, the, the Pamunkey attacked Jamestown, and they had also attacked, I can't remember the name of the city that was on the other side of the James River, Henricus, I think it was. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there was an attack, lots of. European colonials dead, hundreds of them, because you had that list. The third, of the, the, colony,
2: the third of the colony was killed.
0: Not one of those Africans were touched, and you cannot tell me that the Pamunkey did not know exactly where most of them were. Not one of them was touched, not one of those African names, not one of those Angolan names was on either one of those lists.
2: That's absolutely correct.
0: And I don't think anyone's actually really looked at that or even spoken to the Pamunkey about, well, why did you spare... These these thirty and odd people, um, you know, this it's those part of history. And I we're going to have a quick kind of chat about this because our YouTube video, our YouTube streaming and episodes tend to draw a certain kind of person. This is not critical race theory. We are not talking about critical race theory. This is American history. What is the distinction that we need to make as? African-American researchers, genealogists, public historians and historians between history that some people in this country don't like or don't want us to talk about and critical race theory. What, what is your advice on, on kind of making a distinction between those two things?
2: Well, well, well first of all, you know, I, I love hearing all these people who are against critical race theory. I mean, I just enjoy that conversation so much because when somebody says, do you know what it means? They're one by one, they're all saying they don't know what it means. And the reason why they don't know what critical race theory is, is because they're not attorneys and learning it in law school. So it's a whole lot of nothing when they say I'm against critical race theory. There aren't any public schools that teach critical race theory. It's something that's taught at the academic level, primarily, um, in, the, in, the, in the law schools. So I can't really get too upset about critical race theory because when they say they don't want to teach critical race theory because they think it means teaching American history, well, I, I don't get it. So when, when they, so when they stand out there and say, I'm against critical race theory, first thing is ask them, what does it mean? They and don't which, know what it is. Are, and where is it being taught?
1: they don't know what it is they don't there's there are so many videos out there that show these people when they ask them well about critical race theory there's one faint one very one that went viral and this man was so against critical race theory being taught and he was like well what is the um the journal the journalist said well what is critical race theory and he was like well i'm not going to get into all of that And he said, but, well, how do you know that you don't like it? He said, well, I don't know enough about it to say. Well, how are you not going (laughs) to, how do you make your decision? You know, they just kept, they literally have no clue of what it actually is. So that makes it sad in itself that you're fighting against something that you don't even know what it is. And you're just going by what somebody else said. And it's it's just Mm -hmm. really sad. Well, the, uh, yeah, the,
2: the, the the bottom line is um, one of the reasons why they're against it is they don't want us to know, to know about us, our history. Yeah, they don't want us to know us. Now exactly, that beginning to realize that we're standing a little taller, shoulders a little squarer, understanding our history and the importance of our ancestors to the founding of this nation then all of a sudden they don't want us to be taught something that they didn't teach us in the first place. Right. That's right. That's exactly right.
0: I don't know. I mean, I guess I just get very frustrated. It's, it's exhausting because I, I actually feel like a salmon that's been swimming upstream for about the last 15 years. Just because of, and, you know, and I know that Donnie and I, we, we say this at least once, once every episode. But I've just learned so much more about how about how this country was formed and its history and all the different peoples that were here, even back in the early colonial days that I never knew about because it was never in history books. And, and it's I guess so what much I find more
1: exciting
0: and it's so much more exciting. It's like much I mean apart from slavery, which was horrific, it was a much cooler story. You know, me reading about the fact that there were Chinese people and Southeast Asian people and Middle Eastern people in New York, mm-hmm. specifically when it was New Amsterdam. I'm mm-hmm. like, well, I, did, I had no idea about that. Yeah. You know, this country does, ha- I mean, it has its ugly history, which we need to talk about. But there's also this completely evaporated and ignored history that showed just how diverse this country is. Really, really was
1: is. yeah but the even the ugly history is it's exciting because you you are learning something that you didn't know because the ugly history can can have things like the nat turner revolt it can have things like harriet tubman and the the, the path that she went through but instead of you just telling me just about Harriet and not the stuff that went on around her, I'm bored. Because you are gonna tell me about that all the time, but there was something that led to her to get to that point. Right. And, right. and it's all of those outside things that, that makes it exciting that even though it was a bad thing that happened, it was that outside stuff that pushed this woman to then become who she became. It was that outside stuff that pushed that man to realize, you know what, I'm not supposed to be enslaved. This is not what God intended. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he just literally, all of that, it's that outside stuff that comes around when you start, once you start realizing that you're like, is that why that happened? You know, it's a missing link.
2: It's a total missing link. Well, you know, the, the, the whole critical race theory is interesting because when you think of our ancestors, how hard they made sure that we were not taught to read and write. There was a huh. reason for that. They yes. They didn't want us to know anything. And it, it's coming right back around now. They don't want us to know who our ancestors were, the the, the importance of who we were as a people. Uh, so, Brian, mm-hmm. I'm gonna disagree with you slightly. As a salmon, you gotta s- swim upstream if you're gonna spawn new ideas, so they <laughs> come downstream. So don't be ass- don't be afraid to go upstream every now and then.
0: <laughs> oh, I'm not. I'm just saying that the. There are days when it's just exhausting. It is exhausting.
2: It is exhausting.
0: It is exhausting. And again, what you just described is nothing new. You think about, I can't remember the names off the top of my head, but there was the 1619 Africans of Virginia who were acting like magistrates. They learned a second language, English. They learned a legal system that was not meant for them. They learned how to not only navigate it, but succeed and what did they do when those two men died no more black people can be magistrates Mm-mm. none of you can and, and see, they just kept just shutting ta- those doors
1: right and and just what you're talking about is is something that a lot of black people need to know and understand they need to know and understand that we held positions before slavery really kicked in that we actually did certain things before slave slavery really kicked in that's the stuff that's not taught in school those are the things that we don't get to know we don't get to learn we don't get to understand we don't you know those it's that kind of stuff so when you're talking and you got somebody saying oh yeah all they did was enslave my people you're Mm you're 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 speaking you're you're speaking school stuff i'm gonna need you to do some more work you know that (laughs) that's what you start looking at them like you're like i'm gonna need you to go study some more i'm gonna need you to go look at here look at here look at here and then come back to me and let's have this discussion because it's just just it's just crazy
0: and that's why organizations like Sons and Daughters in the Middle Passage, First Families that we've been talking about today, that's why these organizations are so important because not yes. only are we talking about it, we're documenting it. Yes. You can't, you can't take that away from people.
2: Yes. And, and, well, that's the, and, that's, and that's the key thing is that we have to document who our ancestors were, who our people were. And you're absolutely correct. Once you document it, you understand the history in which they, they lived. You pass it on to the next generations, and they will live a very different life than what we did.
1: Yes. Well, I want to thank you. We have come to our hour. <laughs> it's, it's
2: over already? It's over it's already, over. Rick. <laughs> I just started kicking off the shoes getting comfortable. I know, right? You just... <laughs> on, it guys. is. You know, we need a three-hour show here.
1: Well, you know what? We will have you back. Definitely, because we want to talk about your new book when you come back. I have posted your books online. Um, I've put them up there so people can, you know, know where to go, get got the link and everything. But Rick, I'm so excited and thank thankful that you, you know, decided to join us, and I can't wait to have you back.
0: Thank well, Lisa, you so I'm much.
2: Say good now, because I felt a little intimidated when you guys didn't invite me before. And before I forget, <laughs> thank you guys an awful lot. Happy Thanksgiving to you and your guests. Um, and I look forward to coming on once again. All right, so thank you.
0: don't leave us just yet. We're going to see oh, you in okay. the green room. But next week, really, again, um, we're doing another book club. So hope you guys have been reading it. I'll repost information about it. We've been sharing this for the last couple of months. We're talking about the book written by Susie King Taylor, Reminiscences of My Life, Reminiscences of My Life in Camp with the Thirty-Third United States Colored Troop awesome book hopefully we're going to have a really great discussion about it that's going to be here sunday 4 p.m on e360 tv youtube and facebook live
1: yes so i'm donya
0: i'm brian and we will see you next week
1: all right guys bye
0: bye happy holidays